0: Safeway makes sure your grocery shopping is easier than ever. Download the Safeway mobile app today to have your own personal grocery guru right in your pocket. Use it to plan your shopping list like a pro. Find recipes tailored to your diet, get personalized deals on the products you buy most, and choose your shopping style, whether it's in-store, delivery, or drive-up. Safeway's got you covered. Plus, rack up rewards points for every purchase and redeem for free grocery items or discount on gas at participating Exxon or mobile stations. Safeway, fresh foods, local flavors
1: No purchase necessary.
2: Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1946, a series of attacks that would escalate to murder rocked a true border city to its core. This still unknown killer would attack couples in remote locations and disappear into the night. He would leave the citizens of one city in two states, reeling and wondering if when and where he would strike next join us as we discuss the Texarkana phantom killer and dive into the darkness one crime at a time Hello and welcome to One Crime at a Time. I'm your host Shannon. With me, as always, my sister from the same, Mr. Christina. Hey, everybody! We're back. We are. Woo! <laughs> so, how's everybody doing? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm talking like <laughs> I'm, you were talking I'm, I'm, earlier. I'm waiting on all these people listening to answer. Well, I'm, I'm waiting on the emails to come. <laughs> <rolling>. <laughs> oh God, we're gonna be here forever. <laughs> this isn't live. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is going to be kind of a long one, I think. Uh-oh. And like long to, tonight or long? Yeah. Well, oh. both.
1: <laughs> well, look, I haven't eaten yet, okay?
2: <laughs> you should have thought with that, boy. you. Well. Headed over here. So, well, I guess we should go ahead and get started. Today's episode is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care, hair care, and beauty products. With over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands, the Skin Store has you covered for all your hair, cosmetic, supplements, and of course, skincare needs. Find your favorite brands like EltaMD, New Face, Olaplex, and more, all in one place with gifts with every purchase. Right now, the Skin Store is offering our listeners 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD. That's code P-O-D for 20% off. Your next purchase at skinstore.com/pod/list. Skinstore have the confidence to tackle the day ahead. Exclusions apply.
1: Yeah, I'd be a little worried there when you said skin store.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait no, a minute. This is the good kind of skin. <laughs> okay. Store. Not but skin not care. The okay. Skin care store.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay.
2: We are also brought to you by our subscribers on Patreon. You guys are all awesome. If you would like to help support the show, you can for as little as a dollar a month. We have several levels that include access to our exclusive Patreon feed, mini-sodes, merchandise, and commercial-free episodes. So check us out there if you so desire. Yes. Now it's time for that for your favorite part of the show. It's the weekly review, the one review that we read every week. <laughs> She probably
1: got like 600 <laughs> reviews and she's only going to read one we a week. We will never read more than
2: one a week. <laughs> she's scared she's never going to get any more. That's just the rule around here that I have implemented and that we will stick to for the foreseeable future. This is a five-star review. It comes from Mule Can. Mule Can. Lemuel. Lemuel. Lemuel Can. Lemuel Can. Lemuel
1: can. Yes. Okay. says,
2: new fan here. Just found this podcast by accident, and I have to say, I'm very glad I did. It perfectly mixes the seriness, seriousness of the crimes they cover and the humor that keeps it on the lighter side. It sometimes helps you forget that what you are listening to is some of the most awful things that have happened to people. I really like the balance. See well, thank you. That's Mule. what we were going for. Right. <laughs> Thanks for getting in. You have to. It's better to laugh than to cry. Yes, we do appreciate it. We appreciate all of you guys for listening.
1: Okay, so let's get into our story. Okay, here we. I have no idea. I haven't talked to you in like two weeks. <laughs> I don't think have I? It's Been so nice. <laughs> <Just playing. laughs>
2: I can leave. I mean, <laughs> I'll just sit here and talk and tell this, tell these people these fine people the it story. It won't be near as good. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about the city of Texarkana. Do you know anything about the city of Texarkana? I know
1: that it's in the movie, um, The Smoky and the Bandit, and it's in the song, <laughs> He's Founding <it> Down. <laughs> and it's in Texas. there's beer in
2: Texarkana, right? And, and, the, that's where and they're, they're thirsty that's where they, in they're Atlanta. Atlanta <laughs> and there's beer in Texarkana, so they got to go get it. And bring it
1: back yeah. in 24 hours. <laughs> There you go. That is basically... All right. Well, you've, you've done the podcast for us, so you can see is, all you guys later. That is basically later. the summarization of Smokey yeah, and it's the Bandit. Yeah, exactly the summarization of Smokey
2: and the Bandit. And they run into a few it's mishaps, in, mishaps along the way. It's in one line in a song that explains the whole movie. Yep. I all love right. Jerry Reed, too. Jerry <laughs> Reed's awesome. <laughs> My, kid, my son, Waylon, thinks that's the best movie ever made. It's a, he watches well, who, it all the time. You
1: know, that was like a B-movie back then <laughs> when they made it. Who would have guessed that 40 years later, it would still be yeah. like one of the number one movies ever. So, it's it's good. All right.
2: Now, Texarkana, it sits in the northeastern corner of Texas and in the southwestern edge of Arkansas. Now, commonly spoken of as one city, Texarkana actually is a shorthand term for two separate political entities sprawled astride the state line.
1: They named the city after Texas and Arkansas. Yes.
2: Texarkana, Texas, and Texarkana, Arkansas. Now, the name comes from Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Most people, a lot of people don't realize that Louisiana is included in it, but the Louisiana state line is about 30 miles away. Well, then
1: why are they included? Because. because what? Let me guess. They went home and cried to mama.
2: Cause <laughs> we want to be included too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I guess Texarkansas is Texarkansas. It didn't sound well, right. You just it just didn't rhyme it at, with Atlanta, so the song and Smokey and the Bandit wouldn't have worked. But. Well, you could have just left it
1: at Texarkana and not include... I mean, why are you going to include with Louisiana because when it's 30 miles? that's where the
2: Anna part comes from.
1: And I get that, but why?
2: Because it's 30 miles You could have just
1: named it Texark.
2: Texarkan. Texarkans. Still wouldn't have rhymed with Atlanta. You got to have... That. The Anna on the end. The Anna wasn't <laughs> added until
1: the Smokey and the Bandit movie. A lot of people don't realize that.
2: <laughs> just, so, a word. just so. Sort of, that sort of rhymes with Atlanta. Like just so they it, could sing that just song. It like doesn't really rhyme, but it's closer, it's closer. Now, in the early 40s, the population was around 52,393 people. And the town began to get a bit of a reputation. as and crime what in town, the early 40s?
1: That's a lot of people for the early well, I mean, I know. '40s. Well, I'm saying.
2: Wow. Now, in and fact, some of the residents began referring to their little hometown as a "Little Chicago." Hmm. And a lawman of the time named Max Tackett said that Texarkana was "quote calloused to murder," hmm. which I think means that they were just becoming almost immune to violence and crime. That they basically like Chicago to today. Yeah. Or any time, <laughs> or in the but, 40s, I mean, or so Chicago in the 40s. Especially today. Now, it was worse in the 40s. You uh,
1: had the mob no, up there and all. But, well, no, it, it was, trust I'm just me. The
2: mob is still there. Yeah. Don't let people fool you. <laughs> but I'm just saying, that they, they, they owned they're, that town. Listen, they're still there. So, James Mac Hollis, he was born in 1920 in Duboc, Louisiana. Uh, Duboc. That's a funny name, Dubak. Dubak. A few months after his birth, his parents moved to El Dorado, Arkansas, where they opened a general store and restaurant. Did they search for El Dorado? Mm -mm, They just they went right there. The mountain. So they didn't
1: have to search. Mm -mm,
2: Nope, went right to it. (laughs) Now Jimmy grew up in El Dorado and later moved to California for a while, where he attended high school. Now, when the war came, he tried to join the Navy but failed the physical examination because of a congenital heart defect. Okay. So instead, he got a job at an aircraft manufacturing plant in Fort Worth. Yeah, because that's good for your heart. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I I don't think that it bothered him. It's just something that that they noticed when doing his physical. Well, I
1: guess because maybe when you're getting shot at, your heart might fail.
2: It might go to beating a little bit faster Uh, than it would working at an aircraft manufacturing plant. I guess so. Yeah. Now, on the side, he sang in a dance band. It was during this time that he met and married his first wife, Dora Louise Nichols, in December of 1942. He was 22, and she was 19. The marriage, however, would not last long, and in January 1946, they separated for good, and Jimmy left Fort Worth. I thought they lived in Dubak.
1: No. Wait, where when did was, we get? Where did? When did you, we
2: get to Fort Worth? You have just not. <laughs> you were so not listening to anything I said. I
1: didn't hear Fort Worth come out.
2: That's where he. I went heard to, Duboc. That's where he went. to work. He was born in Duboc. He moved to El Dorado, Arkansas. Okay, I remember that. Then he went to California for a little while, where he attended high school. Then and I still don't remember us getting back to Fort Worth. That's where the aircraft manufacturing plant was that he got the job at. Okay. Lord, I'm going to need you to turn your ears on, please. (laughs) Turn.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a lot. Duboc, El Dorado. Where was he at in California?
2: I'm not sure. Was he up there where the naval naval
1: training station and all that is, maybe? No, no,
2: I don't think so. Because that's not why he went to California. His family moved to California for a little while.
1: Well, maybe they had dreams of him joining the Navy. I don't know. (laughs) Does it matter? (laughs)
2: I mean, it's not really. You know what is not funny? really integral to the story here. You know
1: what is funny is when our daddy went in the navy. You know where he went to boot camp at San Diego, Idaho. Oh, that's right. And then he was stationed <laughs> landlocked. Then he was stationed, stationed in, in San Diego, and then in North Carolina. Yeah, but he went to land. Landlocked <laughs> Idaho <laughs> for boot camp for the navy. Isn't that funny?
2: <laughs> Well, they just run you and stuff in boot camps. I know, but it's still, you would think, I mean, you would think,
1: because then he went to Florida for a
2: while, and before he went to North Carolina, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, but anyway. Now, Mary Jean Harris, she was born in Tishomingo, Oklahoma in 1927, and I am so proud of myself for getting that out on the first try. That's the
1: first one. (laughs) It's the first time
2: I've ever done it. Now, when the war boom came, her father took his family to Texarkana, where he had found a job at the Red River Ordnance Depot. And as government housing became available closer to work, the family moved to East Hooks Court, which was a short distance from the gate at the defense plant. So her dad could just pretty much walk The defense
1: away. plant. Now, is that to keep the people from Arkansas trying to cross over into yes, Texas? that's exactly what that is. I'm just asking because <laughs> I'm trying to
2: figure out. <laughs> It was the defense plan for war purposes. Okay. Now, Mary Jean enrolled at Hooks High School where she met 18 year old Roland L. Stretch Larry. Stretch. Stretch.
1: Let me guess, he was tall.
2: Yeah, I'm imagining. Or maybe he
1: was short. No, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was an ironic nickname, yes.
1: is what you're saying. Hey,
2: Stretch. <laughs> Now, the two married in the Miller County Courthouse on the Arkansas side in 1943, and she became Mary Jean Larry. So, Mary Larry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I know.
2: Now, when they went to get married, Mary... She ge- has
1: three first names. Mary, Jean, Jean Larry. Larry.
2: Now, Mary Jean, when they went to get married, she listed her birth date as January 11th, 1925. Wrong. Which would have made her 18 and old <sighs> enough to marry without per- parental permission. So everything's good there, right? No. No, because she was actually only 16. She lied about her birth date. Now, after they married, Larry went into the Navy, and by the time he returned from the war, the marriage had deteriorated. Larry, her husband, Stretch Larry, left for college in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, 80 miles from Texarkana. Okay. Now, Mary Jean remained in Hooks, living with her parents, and by the end of 1945, their separation was permanent. One month after she signed the divorce papers, she met Jimmy Hollis in February of 1946. Okay. He asked her out on a date for the night of February the 22nd, 1946. So that's the night we're going to go to. Now, on that evening, Jimmy had arranged a double date for he and Mary Jean with his younger brother, Bob, and a girl named Virginia Lorraine Fairchild. Okay. They went to see the movie Three Strangers at the Paramount Theater. And I have no idea what that movie's about. I don't either, but I
1: heard about never it on Hollywood it. Graveyard, but I can't remember <laughs> now who the dead star is that starred to, in it. I'm trying to, was it,
2: I, I can't, I don't know that I've ever heard of that one. They all left the theater at about a quarter after 10. And Jimmy Hawes was driving an old model gray Chevrolet. And he took them to a drive-in cafe where they had soft drinks and just kind of chatted for a while. So the, Jimmy, after they had had drinks and chatted at the cafe, Jimmy drove Bob and his date home. And by 11 o'clock, which was less than an hour after leaving the theater, Jimmy and Mary Jean drove on New Boston Road on the Texas side, which would take them to Highway 82 and west to Hooks, which was where Mary Jean was living. But before he took Mary Jean home, Uh-oh. he decided they would take they would take a detour. He detoured to a gravel to gravelled Richmond Road, which was north of town. They followed Richmond Road about a hundred yards past the last row of houses and turned off onto a dirt road and parked. Okay, I don't know what they were doing. They were catching up. <laughs> you think? Mm-hmm. Now, they were in pitch black darkness as they talked. And for some okay. reason... The,
1: that, the radio didn't have no lights on it? They
2: didn't have the radio on. They were just sitting in the car talking. That's or creepy. Doing, or
1: At least turn it on <laughs> so the lights will like, come on. You can turn it down. That's what that knob is for. Well, for some reason they didn't. Turn light, and cars had interior lights in the 40s and 30s, didn't they? I think They were driving at night, so they had to have headlights. Well, yeah, they had
2: headlights. (laughs) Now, for some reason that he could never explain to anybody, Jimmy impulsively got out of the car and was just looking at the sky, searching, looking at stars or whatever. This is what he says. So as he stood by the car, suddenly out of nowhere, a powerful flashlight beam switched on and shined right into his eyes, which, of course, blinded him. He couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm.
1: That's because he was sitting in the dark, See so if he'd had some kind of light on...
2: <laughs> I think that would have made it worse, don't you think, for your eyes to adjust to that bright... I mean, either way, your eyes are going to have to adjust to that bright light. Now, from around the halo of light, he saw about 20 feet away what appeared to be a pistol barrel aimed his way. It was being held by a man with a rough voice barking orders in a mean tone. And judging from the voice and the level of the flashlight, Hollis thought the man was tall and fairly young. Okay. The man ordered Jimmy, "Quote, take off your fucking pants, dude. Look, I know this is the <laughs> '40s." <laughs> he got all extra about it pretty quick. Yeah, for real, dude. Now Jimmy first thought Jimmy's first thought was that this had to be some grant game or some prank and somebody had him mistaken Why for somebody that else everybody's first thought well, because it's not i mean your brain is not going to register that something is going crazy here at first that would be the
1: first thing I'd think <laughs> <We're all stuck. laughs> well, i think are you mean, crazy
2: <laughs> i mean i mean especially today, probably some,
1: especially as some guy if I were a man in in the 40s and some guy come out pointing a flashlight and a gun at me and said, like, take off your fucking pants, I'd be like, oh hell no. I
2: mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I would find it strange, yes. So Jimmy replied, fella, you've got me mixed up with someone else. You've got ah, the wrong so man. He did
1: think it was strange. Yeah,
2: well, I mean, he just thought that it was somebody that was like, just supposed to be playing, that, that was trying to joke around with somebody and thought that they were somebody else. Now, this made the man angry, and he moved closer to Jimmy. The man then told Jimmy, quote, I don't want to kill you, fella, so you better do what I tell you. Take off your goddamn pants now. So Jimmy realizes, hey, this ain't no joke. It took him <laughs> that long to realize this wasn't a joke. Now, from inside the car, he heard Mary Jean pleading, Jimmy, please just take them off. You know. Maybe she did that because that was the only way she could
1: get him naked. So she had somebody come on. But she didn't want to seem like a whore or anything. Well, I mean, since your
2: pants are already off.
1: We need to calm down. Our hearts are already racing. Yeah, I mean, we might as well. I mean, we're here.
2: So... Really, having no choice, Jimmy took off his pants. The gun. Was he
1: wearing underwear?
2: Um, uh, uh, I would assume yes. Not
1: everybody does.
2: Well, I would. I would think he was wearing underwear. Okay. The gunman moved closer and hit Jimmy viciously <laughs> on the head twice with a heavy blunt blunt object that felt like an iron pipe or a pistol barrel. So my guess is it was probably the pistol barrel. Probably. The force knocked his glasses off and he fell to the ground. The man kicked him and Jimmy could feel metal cleats in the man's shoes or boots or whatever he was wearing, stomping on his chest. Then the stranger struck Jimmy again on the head as he lay on the ground. Mary Jean thought that Jimmy had been shot. And the reason she thought this was because she thought she'd heard a gunshot. However, what she had heard was Jimmy's skull cracking. Ugh. So that's how loud it was. With Jimmy disabled on the ground, the assailant turned his attention to Mary Jean. oh She got out of the car and leaned over to pick up Jimmy's trousers and took out his billfold, showing it to the assailant, and said, Look, he doesn't have any money. You're lying, the man shouted. She replied, No, look, you can see, she told him. The man then bent over to where Jimmy was laying and searched his pants. I thought he had
1: taken his pants off.
2: Well, they were kind of just down around his ankles. He had lowered his pants. Okay. Or either they were right beside him, I think. Or
1: something, because... I mean, they
2: were there beside him when he took them off. He then asked Mary Jean, where's your purse? She said that she didn't have one, and this made the man even more angry, and he hit her on the head with, again, what felt like a metal pipe. Again, I th- I'm pretty sure it's probably the gun. It could have been a metal pipe. Yeah, I just... It could have been the flashlight, too, because those yeah, were flashlights exactly. it were heavy been, back then. That's true. It could have been the flashlight. She fell to the ground, but somehow managed to get up, and the man then yelled at her, take off, run! So she started running for a nearby ditch. Not that way, he shouted. Go up the road.
1: My buddies is back there. They're waiting (laughs) on
2: me. Now, she was wearing high-heeled shoes, so she's trying to run up this dirt road. Take
1: your shoes off. While she's
2: doing this, she could hear Jimmy still on the ground groaning because he's he's really hurt. So the man then turned his attention back to Jimmy, beating and stomping him even more. And Mary Jean continued running, and she came upon an old model car parked by the side of the road that was facing toward Jimmy's car. So Mary Jean, she's hoping that somebody's in this car that can help her. And she stopped and looked inside, but didn't see anyone in the car. And it didn't dawn on her at the time that that was probably the stranger's car that had parked with the lights off before he walked up to him. Yeah. Because if somebody was sitting in that car they and saw have this been, going on, they would have gotten out right
1: or done or what, left, left, and then, left you know, or something. Yeah.
2: So then the gunman took off and started to chase her down the road. He caught up with her, and this part is so weird to me. I just find this really weird. He yelled at her, "Quote: What the hell are you running for?" And of course Because you told me to, <laughs> dumbass. And of course, because he had told her to, she replies, You told me to run. And he screams, You're a goddamn liar. Now, I don't understand the point of this. I don't know if he legitimately forgot he told her to I run. I think he's or if schizophrenic. He's just playing some game or what's going on? I think he's just crazy. Well it's freaking weird to me. You think? <laughs> He then slammed her with the blunt object, opening a wound on her scalp. So she drops to the ground again. She then felt a violent tug at her panties and then the sudden intrusion of a metallic object like a pistol muzzle. And this was because he was raping her with the pistol. Yet he didn't try to rape her himself. Now when it was over, she rose unsteadily to her feet and the abuse was so painful, so humiliating, that once on her feet, she just begged him to go ahead and kill her. She just screamed, go ahead and kill me. Now in the meantime, Jimmy had regained consciousness and he was nearly blind because he didn't have his glasses on. His head was foggy from, you know, his skull being cracked. He had blood running down his face and into his eyes, and his pants were gone. He looked up, and he saw car lights on Richmond Road. So Jimmy gets to his feet, and he stumbles toward the gravel road. He tried to stand up, but he fell back on the ground. So he starts crawling, kind of trying to get toward the road. Now, at the same time, over where Mary Jean and their attacker were, the man suddenly turned and left her in the middle of the road. And we figured that that was most likely because he had also seen the car lights coming from Richmond Road. So he takes off. And as soon as the man was gone, Mary Jean ran to the first house she saw on Richmond Road, screaming, help me, help me. And she gets to this house and starts just pounding on the front door. Just then, a car came along, and she yelled for it to stop, but the driver kept going. So, I don't know if that was the perpetrator leaving the scene. Yeah. Most likely, probably. Yeah. I would think. Um, but since they didn't stop, you know, I don't know for sure, but I would think that it probably was. So she runs back to the house and keeps shouting and pounding on the door. A man finally comes to the door, and she says she tells him to call the police, and she explains to the man what had happened. So he immediately calls the sheriff's office. Now, Jimmy had made it to the road and was able to flag a car down, and the driver stopped. This right. This driver stopped. A man and a woman were in the car, and the man with the man driving and jimmy told them i've got to see a doctor i'm hurt bad take me to the hospital jimmy then tried to open the door this guy's back door and crawl into the back seat and the driver shouted immediately at him don't do that you'll get blood in my car oh really i'll call an ambulance for you as soon as i can get to a telephone Now, it turns out that he didn't have to go call the police because just about that time is when the ambulance pulled up from when the guy that Mary Jean had alerted had called the police. And its driver, the ambulance driver, rushed over to Hollis. And immediately afterward, a city policeman arrived. Hollis stumbled toward the ambulance, and the policeman stopped to talk to the motorist. It was the last time Hollis saw that man. And minutes later, the ambulance whisked Hollis to a Texarkana hospital a few blocks from downtown. Now, Mary Jean, seeing the ambulance coming, she ran from the house in time to ride with the policeman to the hospital. And once in the ambulance, Jimmy obsessively just kept reciting to the attendant. He was telling him his name, his address, and where his brother Bob could be reached. And he just keeps saying it over and over and over again. And his pants, and this was because his pants and wallet were gone, so he didn't have any identification with him. And he said that he kept, that he was just afraid that he would die and no one would know who he was. So that was his only thought going to the hospital was that I'm going to die and nobody's going to know who I am. So they're not going to be able to tell my family that I'm dead. Or So his only thought going to the hospital was I need to make sure that they know who I am. Right now, Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley, he had not called it a day yet, even though it was kind of it was late, when that call came in late that Friday night. He had just a few deputies for the entire county, so he responded to the scene himself. And although the attack had occurred in the county's jurisdiction and outside of the Texarkana city, Texarkana city limits. Three city policemen had also responded to the call. And that's because with a small staff to cover the whole county, Presley granted special deputy commissions to some city policemen. Well, a lot of
1: places will do that. Yeah, and
2: this enabled them just to respond beyond their usual range so that if a well, sheriff's if deputy wasn't help. available.
1: yeah, I mean,
2: somebody needs help, somebody needs help. I right. don't care where they're from. Right, so he had done that so that they
0: would be able to cover more area. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Now, the sheriff and the policeman checked out what little was known of the Friday night attack. Uh, they scoured the area in search of the assailant, tracking what they believed to be the route of the gunman's automobile. They traced him to the house that Mary Jean had run to. Hmm. So this suggested that she had narrowly escaped from him a second time. I think that the, the his car that that was her his car that she tried to flag down when she was at the house. Right. I really do. Now from there they followed the tracks eastward to Summerhill Road and they found Jimmy's pants about 100 yards from the scene of the attack, but they did not find the attacker. Sheriff Presley and the policeman drove down to interview the victims at the hospital. Now, Jimmy, at this time, was b- barely conscious and in very critical condition. His skull had been fractured in three different places, so they just weren't able to talk to him at that right. time. He, just, he was in surgery. He wasn't conscious. There was just no way. Now, Mary Jean was being treated in the emergency room when the officers arrived, She had deep cuts in her head, and the doctor had to use eight stitches to close up the wounds just in her head. And, of course, she was in just a severe state of emotional distress. She was very distraught, and she just wanted to go home. Right. Now, when Sheriff Presley and his deputy, Frank Riley, questioned her at the hospital, she said that the attacker had on a white mask and that it had cut out places for his eyes and mouth and she felt sure that he was a black man of light complexion. This was partly based on her interpretation of the way he talked. And upon further reflection and further questioning, officers began questioning the accuracy of her description. Now, what I'm about to say is what these officers said and thought in 1946, Texas, okay? These are not my words, not how I think, but I felt that it's important to say all this because it lets you know who these officers were and where their mindset was and why it may be part of why this attacker was never found. Okay, so I just want to say that up front. Their thoughts were, considering the locale of the attack and the type of crime, it didn't fit the pattern of a black criminal. As as attackers such as these tend to hunt within their own ethnic groups. Now, I will say that that is true. Back
1: then, that was true.
2: Now, I will say for serial killers, that is a true statement. That most of the time, you know, a white serial killer will attack white people and a black serial killer will attack black people or, you know. But the way they're phrasing it and the way they're talking about it, this time is not in that because they didn't even well first of all it wasn't even a killer at this point and they had no idea if it well was it a was an killer. attacker
1: and i guess that maybe they're going off of <laughs> other attacks that they had had i don't i'm not i'm not condoning yeah. them don't get me wrong i'm just trying to think of why they would have thought that it's, yeah it's why i'm saying that yeah.
2: now they considered part of mary Jean's statement open to question or at least incomplete and as for the mask, the more the officers thought about it, the more they wondered is, because the main reason for wearing a mask would be to hide your features so that you wouldn't be identified. Yeah. Now, in the dark, that seemed unlikely because darkness would have shielded, this is what they said, <laughs> this is really, darkness would have shielded a black man more.
1: No, <laughs> not
2: if you're close enough. I mean, this is a stupid-ass statement. He was pretty close to him. Yeah. So they're questioning why had he worn the mask, and a white mask no less. So they're saying there is no way that a black man would dare wear a white mask. Why? Because they're... Because they just are who they are, which is just crazy. I mean... They also wondered how she was even able to see a mask when it was dark outside.
1: Because, okay, I'm sorry. Well, if that you're just close goes enough to somebody, you can see every feature that they have. It doesn't matter. Plus,
2: that statement goes against their statement up here of why, um, why um, the mask would need to be worn anyway. Because they're saying they think that, the, that she knew them. And so that they would need to hide their features, but down here they're saying, "Well, why wear the mask when nobody would have been able to see you anyway?" Okay, so they're contradicting never, themselves. It's
1: never so <laughs> dark that if you're close enough to somebody that you're beating them on the top of the head and raping them that they cannot see your features and tell that you have a mask on. Yeah, that's pretty darn close to somebody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now standing a hundred yards off, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to tell nobody's features during the day.
2: So, one deputy raised the possibility that she and perhaps Hollis actually knew the man and out of fear claimed he wore a mask in an effort to prevent retaliation. Well, why would
1: they retaliate? I mean, it's not like he did anything to them.
2: (laughs) 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 I hope you're joking. Yes, I'm joking. Now, since both victims were married, police wondered if jealousy might have been a motive for the attack. I thought they weren't married. Well, they were in the process of divorcing. But now, they're separated, now, right? But they're still married, technically. And they well, were thinking that maybe but a
1: date is not marriage. No, Another they're marriage.
2: married not to each other. Married know, to other people. I know. But still, if but you've if got a separa- jealous, if you've got a jealous ex-husband, and if, you go on a date, if you're legally
1: separated, you have the right to date. Though. Well, it doesn't matter to somebody that's crazy jealous. Well, no, they those don't are, care. Those are just
2: crazy people, right? So they're saying that it may have been that situation. Maybe it wasn't a
1: man at all.
2: Maybe it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> now they checked out Mary Jean's husband, but he had an airtight, airtight alibi. And when police were finally able to question Jimmy a little over two weeks later, he described the man as being tall, white, and young, not over thirty years old. And when asked about a mask, Jimmy said he didn't remember seeing a mask, but that he could have been wearing one and maybe he just didn't see it. I mean, he did get hit in the head
1: and his skull cracked. I mean, he could have forgotten that one little tidbit.
2: Yeah, and I don't know if you caught on to the fact that Jimmy says he's white and that Mary Jean said that he was Wearing a white mask. That he was black. Wearing a white mask. Wearing a white mask, but she described him as a black male. Jimmy says he's white. Mary Jean said he was black.
1: Well, when he hit Jimmy, though, wasn't he still shining the light in his eyes when he hit him the first time? First time, time.
2: yeah. yeah. And he
1: went down on the ground, so he may not have realized. That's true. And, I mean, because, I mean, she's sitting in the car. She's looking at this guy.
2: Yeah, but, I mean, I don't know how. Now, she, I think, probably got a better view of him and his features when he was assaulting her
1: probably but if you think about it when he's hitting jimmy that flashlight's going all over the place in his hands mm-hmm. even if he's hitting jimmy with the not the lens part that means the flashlight's turned around which means it's going to glow a little bit of light on his yeah, if and that's all that. what he used so if he's sitting in the car well even hitting it with the gun that flashlight's not going to stay directly on jimmy so there could have it could have been turned enough that she could have seen that he had a mask on, that he was a black male. Or I'm mm-hmm. just saying, because she's sitting in the car the whole time he's mm-hmm. assaulting Jimmy.
2: Yeah. Now some lawmen suspected one or both of the victims were concealing the identity of the gunman. Officers didn't believe a black man had attacked them, so they believed Jimmy on that point just because they oh that
1: is so sexist (laughs) (laughs) i'm calling this is what it is sexist
2: and racist (laughs) well i guess because they're taking the guy's word for it instead of listening to because he.
1: i'm telling you the reason that she could have seen him there's plenty of opportunities that she had to see him when he's assaulting jimmy Mm -hmm. because she's just sitting in the car right i mean in the flashlight when he's assaulting him you know he's It's going around. It could have shown enough light on his face and his features that she
2: saw it. Yeah. And they wondered if Jimmy hadn't seen a mask, why would Mary Jean claim the man wore one? Because just because he didn't see
1: one doesn't mean he wasn't wearing one. Now, they
2: acknowledge that in a time of panic, a strong beam flashlight in your eyes might create the illusion of a hood or a halo from the reflection. But that concept really... Gained a little support in explaining why, explaining her seeing the hood. Uh, She didn't
1: say she saw a hood. She said she saw a mask. Well,
2: it was like a hood. It was kind of like a, kind of like what the Zodiac wore when he attacked (gasps) at Lake Berryessa. It was kind of like just a pillowcase with holes cut out for his eyes. Maybe this was the exact Zodiac. (laughs) Maybe it was. We will talk about that later.
1: (gasps) Now... I mean, I'm just saying there's plenty of opportunities that she would have gotten a better look at him than Jimmy would have.
2: Now, instead, officers begin to insist that she she knew her attacker and was protecting him, perhaps out of fear, by claiming that he was black and wore a hood. (laughs) So they're telling her that she didn't see what she saw. Of course, of course they are. Let's believe the man (laughs) over the woman. Now, the attack of Jimmy and Mary Jean didn't really get much coverage in the newspapers at the time. And since police were convinced that Mary Jean knew who the attacker was, it was kind of just pushed to the side. It didn't really cause any panic in the community at the time. But on Saturday evening, March 23rd, 1946, another event would happen that would throw this attack back to the forefront of people's minds.
1: Because you should have done something about it the first time. (laughs) What is, I mean, I'm sorry. I have all the faith in the world in police officers.
2: You wouldn't know by listening to this
1: podcast. (laughs) I really do have all, I mean, because there are a lot of good police officers out there.
2: Things were just done differently. That I mean, crimes weren't... They didn't have... Solved. Much investigated. <laughs> period. Uh, yeah, right. Now... I mean. <laughs> okay, moving on. Crime scenes. Well, let's just take stuff from this crime scene. Then we'll bring it back. Now, Richard Lanier Griffin was born August the 31st, 1916. He was the oldest boy of a Cass County, Texas farm family of five children. Okay. His father had served as the county's tax collector before resigning to go back to farming. Richard was a carpenter and cabinet maker who worked for a contractor before the war. And after Pearl Harbor, he went with the contractor to Hawaii repairing damage, you know, from the attack. Damage to the homes? To homes, to the base, to pretty much everything in that general area. To the Bay and Pearl Harbor. (laughs) He returned from Hawaii still single, and so he was eligible for the draft. He joined the Navy and served in the Navy's construction battalions in the South Pacific. Okay. Following his discharge, Richard returned to his civilian work, which was carpentry. He joined his mother and two other siblings who were living in Texarkana. That is a
1: popular... Maybe I should visit Texarkana. We have a cousin that lives in Texarkana. Who? Michael.
2: Oh, I didn't know that's where he lived. Mm -hmm. Shout out, Michael. In Texarkana. Texarkana. That's how she said it the first time. Texarkana.
1: It it was so funny. (laughs) Yeah, it did. Texarkana.
2: (laughs) Now, Griffin was a handsome man with dark auburn hair and freckles. And in February 1946, Richard caught the eye of a brown-haired, blue-eyed teenager named Polly Ann Moore. Okay. He was 29. She was only 17. Oh,
1: no. That's creepy. Oh, no, dude, no. <laughs> no. Now, all I'm going to say
2: about that is and that... And I'm not,
1: no, no, no don't get those, me wrong. In
2: those days, the 12-year... Difference in age wasn't really a big well, deal. Well, even today, like it's it
1: not. Today. It's not today. Yeah, it is really. It's. I mean, be, well, I'm sorry, no, because lo, I mean, if you age. love somebody and you're in love with them, age doesn't matter. Well, it but does. But not a 30 year old and a 17 year old. least wait for it to turn 20, it, or just
2: don't don't go find somebody your own age <laughs> or closer to your own. Just don't do that. But you know, it was a different time. That's all I'm going to say. I just.
1: Now, the, the under-18 is what's getting me. It's not the 12-year
2: difference.
0: <laughs> right. It's the under-18 right, exactly, thing that's getting exactly. me.
2: <laughs> right. Now, Polly Ann Moore was born November 10th of 1928. Polly and her younger brother, Mark, were reared by their mother, Lizzie, after their father, George Lizzie Moore. Lizzie No. Okay. Lizzie Moore. Okay. <laughs> after their father, George Moore, had died of a stroke when Polly was eight. Oh, Now, Polly attended Atlanta High School in Atlanta.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. D W Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Texas. My <laughs> God,
2: like, like what I did there. Oh, so y'all like thought you, it was you Georgia. You thought I was talking about Georgia. They thought, they thought it thought was Georgia. You thought I was talking about Georgia. Actually,
1: I didn't. <laughs> I was waiting. That's why I
2: didn't say anything. <laughs> anyway, uh, attended Atlanta High School in Atlanta, Texas for her last two years, graduating in 1945 at the age of 16. Okay. So at 17, she had already graduated high school.
1: Well, maybe they, she was considered an adult since yeah. she had graduated high school, but not in my
2: book. She <laughs> right. need to be at least 18. <laughs> now, before the war was over in the Pacific, she took a job at Red River Ordnance Depot. As there was a, a
1: lot of people that worked there, wasn't mm-hmm. there?
2: Which, I mean, I would That think, was the
1: place to work. Yeah,
2: during the war, I'm sure it employed most of the people in that town. She took, she took a job there as a checker of ammunition and other material being loaded onto the trucks. Job. I want that job. Checker so was, of ammunition. Yeah, checker of, She was just pretty much an inventory person, I guess. <laughs> Polly went to live with her mother's cousin, Ardella Campbell, and takes Arcana to be closer to work. Okay. Now, on Saturday evening, March the 23rd, Richard drove to 1215 Magnolia in his 1941 Oldsmobile sedan.
1: My dad was an Oldsmobile man. man.
2: (laughs) And he picked up Polly. They were going to dinner at the popular Canary Cottage.
1: Canary Cottage? And then to a movie. All right. What movie was playing?
2: I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. Okay. Now the Canary Cottage was an all night restaurant specializing in steak and chicken. Oh man. Situated at the edge of the city I haven't it's on had West dinner Seven. Yet. <laughs> can you imagine it being like two AM in the morning and you can go get steak yes. and
1: chicken? <laughs> yes I can because we did that one night at Denny's. We were coming home from a football game. And Denny's was the
2: only thing yeah, you can. gotta have breakfast at two AM. You got to go to the Shonies. You know what? You got to go to the
1: Shonies. The Shoney's was not open. You know what I had? The Shoney's was always open. Not at that
2: time. Oh, it was because always your open. Shownies, your
1: Shoney's were closed most of the time when this happened. Most of them were closed. Oh, you're right? talking about the
2: whole thing closed? Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. So we that stopped was the after my time. And I got some steak. I got a steak with some fried eggs and some bacon <laughs> <laughs> and some grits.
2: And some indigestion.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. It was so good. So.
2: Road trip. (laughs) I would die if I ate all that.
1: I eat like that all the time. Now,
2: Richard and Polly met Richard's unmarried sister, Eleanor, and her boyfriend, Jesse Proctor, at the restaurant and had dinner. Why'd you have to throw in there that she was unmarried? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, I guess I wanted to be, y'all to be clear that she wasn't having an affair. She just had a boyfriend. Okay. So she she just had a boyfriend. Yeah, Jesse Proctor. Jesse yes. Proctor. Proctor. Is yes. he
1: is he who the proctologist are named after?
2: Yes, that's where it came from. Because <laughs> Jesse was an asshole. <laughs> See what we did there. Boom. boom. <laughs> now afterward, the two couples went their separate ways. Yeah. So Richard and Polly drove back to her house because she had spilled something on her blouse and she wanted to change before they went to the movie. Okay. So, they then went to the Midnight Movie at the Paramount Theater downtown.
1: Okay. And
2: the film they saw was Snafu.
1: Snafu. I haven't heard of that one.
2: I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Now, after the movie. That hasn't
1: been on Hollywood Graveyard yet. It hasn't
2: been on TCM. Has not been. (laughs) Or, Or if it has, I miss that one. I watch that channel a lot. Now, after the movie, they went to a West 7th Cafe for an after movie snack. And a, I'm just going to say, a lot of the places in Texarkana were open 24 hours. This a lot of a, places in Texas a in late general were, like,
1: open 24 hours. This was
2: a late-night city, even in the 40s. They left that cafe around 2 a.m. And before taking Polly home, Richard drove out west 7th, less than a half mile past the city limits near Stockman's Cafe, where he turned south onto a dirt road. Uh-oh. About fifty yards off of the highway, he stopped yeah. at a parking area. Well, at least he
1: didn't go quite as far.
2: <laughs> now, after a short while, anyway, he drove to this parking area and they parked. Okay. And after a short while, another car drove up and parked.
1: That's just creepy. Mm. Oh God! Oh God! That's
2: creepy. Now, Rich. <laughs> You looked like you wanted to say something. and I was to.
1: it wouldn't come out. And I was in
2: the middle of saying Richard. <laughs> so that's what happened there <laughs> for the listeners.
1: I was going to say, if you think back to the way the cases of the Zodiac Killer are isn't this like eerily similar? Again, we will
2: get there I'm eventually. Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, thank it you. It is.
1: Sort of. So, see, I do pay attention sometimes. <laughs>
2: Now, Richard and Polly probably thought that it was another couple.
1: Catching up.
2: Yeah. So, this is what, I'm going to say, this is what was described in a book that I read as a source. But, uh, there's no way that this person, the writer, could know what really happened. But, this is what they assumed happened. Did these two die? Well, let me tell the story. Okay. Tell your story. I would assume so, since I just said that there's no way. Well, that's why I'm asking. Or, were they just,
1: were they like... Hit so hard that they were like not. They just forgot everything and didn't know what well, happened. Well, I guess you'll just have to wait and find out. So, see, that's why I was
2: asking. Could okay. it
1: be that they got amnesia?
2: It could be. A man stealthily walked up and remained unnoticed by Richard and Polly. And unaware of the intruder's presence, Richard and Polly continued their that's conversation him on the glass. <laughs> Suddenly, he brandished a handgun and ordered Gri- and ordered Griffin to drop his pants. <laughs> Griffin did so. Now we do know that that part happened. That at some point, what is the deal with dropping the, drop
1: the pants? Why not just ask for money? I don't. I'm not understanding. I think it's to keep
2: them from running away. Because if you got pants down around your ankles, oh, I could run. I'd run right out of the pants. <laughs> like I said, we cannot be certain exactly what happened next, but. Eventually, the gunmen shot both Richard and Polly.
1: Why, dude? First,
2: restricting Richard's movements by forcing him to drop his pants, and then inside the car, shooting him twice in the back of the head, splattering blood all over the inside of the car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He shot him in the head. That's not just blood
2: all over the car. Well, I'm trying to not be so... There's... Brain matter. Okay, I was was trying not to be so... (laughs) Well, I mean, they're not stupid out there. They kind of know. He shot Polly twice outside of the car on a blanket. Outwardly, there was no sign of beating or of rape. The killer moved Polly's body into the car with her body slumped in a seating position while Richard's body leaned forward from the back seat... And on his face and with his pants around his ankles. So he was kind of just bent over with his head with his head in his hands across the seat.
1: Maybe he's trying to make it look like they were doing something when they came up and got killed.
2: Maybe. I mean I'm I'm just I don't know. I'm really not being funny that yeah. time though. <laughs> now at around nine o'clock the next morning, a passing motorist noticed the car and wondered why it was there at that time of day. People don't park this time of
1: the day. I wonder why this car is
2: here. <laughs> well, I mean, really. I mean, sounds logical to me. <laughs> he could see what appeared to be two people inside. But there was something unnatural about the way it looked. Well, somebody is smart. hmm His suspicions rose. And on closer inspection, I what this is. he grew alarmed and he called the police. Well, I imagine so. So city police immediately sped to the scene. Rear, <laughs> rear, are you, are you, like, acting this out over there? Yes, okay. I'm bored. <laughs> I didn't know that's what we were doing now. <laughs> we're really not. I'm oh, just okay. <laughs> bored. <laughs> okay. Now, the police dispatcher relayed the message to the Bowie County Sheriff's Office. Boo. And by the time Sheriff Bill Presley arrived, a, quote, very large crowd had assembled. Oh, God, really? Y'all did not curtain off the crime R- scene? Curtain it off. I <laughs> mean, rope it off. Curtain off the crime scene. Curtain it off? Yes. Like it's a canopy (laughs) bed. Well, (laughs) why not? Now, it had rained throughout the morning, so it had obliterated any tracks in the dirt around the car. And very few clues were left. About 20 feet from the car, a section of the ground was saturated with dried blood, indicating that one of the victims, which it would later be determined was Polly Moore, had been murdered outside of the car. Now, how did they determine it was her? Because it was her blood type. Okay. But they had
1: the same blood type.
2: They did not. Okay. Blood had seeped through the bottom of the car's door and onto the running boards, where it congealed. Mm. That's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Yay. Griffin's pants pockets were turned inside out as if to, as if to suggest robbery.
1: No, I think he just gets joy out of seeing men in their underwear. You
2: know, that may be the whole purpose of all this. That's well, why we I think know. this
1: is a woman.
2: <laughs> Maybe not. I know a lot of guys that would enjoy seeing men in their underwear. Well, I'm just saying now, for, this, the time, for the time. Well, I mean, this was the only way he could do that. Well, this is this true. Because it was the 40s. Now, both victims were shot in the back of the head, but no weapon was found. What evidence rain hadn't washed away, officers and gawkers had destroyed by walking around the crime oh, scene. Oh, my Jesus.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> First, you don't believe the only real witness you got. <laughs> because poor Jimmy, bless his heart, he don't know whether he's coming or going at now, that Now, I time. will
2: say that he was, his head was cracked in three different places, so maybe his memory isn't as good that's what know. i'm
1: saying i mean you're gonna believe the one that stayed conscious the whole time or are you gonna believe the one that got his skull cracked open three times
2: <laughs> i don't know
1: i mean me i'm gonna believe the one that sat there and watched the other one get attacked yeah so
2: i don't know and
1: now oh
2: we know how you feel I just, you don't have to say it we all know With their
1: little hats on, because you know how they dressed in the 40s with those (laughs) long jackets and those high boots? I can just see them out there. I wonder what this is.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You done now? Yes. Okay. So after the bodies were taken away, the Oldsmobile remained at the site for hours until it was moved to the Arkansas side police station where a more thorough search for fingerprints could be done.
1: They trusted Arkansas better than Texas, I guess. Yeah, I don't
2: know why they had to move it to Arkansas, to the Arkansas side to Let's check the I don't know Let's why hope. the Texarkana police station couldn't do well, it. Well, if
1: everybody had been walking around it, you know somebody come up and touch the car. Well, boom. I have
2: a story about that. There's actually a um, a man and his wife who actually had a towing business. And they actually just came up on the scene. They weren't called to the scene, but they just came up on the scene and you know he went and asked you know is this a wreck y'all need me to you know tow somebody and they said well actually we do need you to tow this car to the police station so they did and the wife is watching them you know move this car around and when her husband gets back in the car she's like so why was everybody pushing that car with their bare hands (laughs) Yeah, let me let me let me point something out
1: here. And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> let me point something out here. The only smart person at that crime scene was a woman.
2: But she's she was remember thinking, you know, that's crazy. They're bringing it here to get checked for fingerprints, but yet you've got like three guys back there pushing the and car they tell with their bare How hands. many people touching it before that and happened? And somebody had to be steering it with touching the steering wheel to steer it to wherever sitting they were trying that to
1: move it to. Sitting blood and brain <laughs> no, matter.
2: I, I don't think they were sitting in it, but I'm sure they were reaching inside which means the car. They had, which means
1: they had to touch the door right. handle.
2: And touch the steering wheel. Where the
1: guy had touched. Yeah. Y'all are so smart. I hope somebody <laughs> had some
2: gloves on.
1: If for nothing else, because of the blood and brain matter on the steering wheel.
2: <laughs> now, okay, so in the hours... <clears throat> on, I lost did my i place. make you lose your place yeah. i'm sorry it's okay so in the hours that the car was sitting there and the area was being searched law enforcement still missed evidence well i wonder why about 50 feet from the car a man who was just a bystander who actually was there holding his baby and he brought his baby to the crime scene <laughs> dad what were we doing when i was six months old Well, well, let me tell you,
1: son. Let me tell you
2: what we did. (laughs) He actually found the set of keys to Richard's car about 50 feet away. Please
1: tell me he didn't pick them up.
2: Yes. Oh, my. With the crowd milling around earlier, the officers had not seen the keys trampled into the ground by numerous feet. So the man just reached over, picked them up, and took them to the...
1: With Lucky Land you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Which I'm sure, with them being in the mud all that time and hadn't walked on and everything else... They probably didn't have a bunch on them anyway.
1: Still, but you pictures, don't know that. Pictures. <laughs> you don't
2: know that.
1: Need to take pictures of where it's at. Right.
2: So the sheriff immediately launched an area-wide investigation. He notified both Texas and Arkansas lawmen at city, county, and state levels, along with the FBI, and the Texas Department of Public Safety, and the Texas Rangers. He needs all the help he can get. <laughs> Now, a physician examined Polly Ann Moore's body and determined that she had not been raped. In addition to the physician's assessment that Polly had not been raped, other evidence also supported that opinion. Max Tackett, who at the time was with the Arkansas State Police, noted that the victim was still wearing a sanitary pad at the time of death. That was why she didn't get raped. Now, this fact tended to back up the physician's conclusion now, the killers moving her body from the outside to the inside the car seems to have been part of a plan to conceal the deaths as long as possible, at least until dawn, by which time he would have been able to get away, presumably, which he Well, did.
1: apparently he could get away anyway, because he was right there that first attack. And yeah,
2: yeah <laughs> exactly. Dumb. Now, rumors of rape, however, soon spread and persisted for decades. Now... The ballistics report from the Texas Department of Public Safety's Bureau of Investigation and Records offered the first and only solid link to the killer, and it was keyed in to the cartridge shells that were found at the death scene and bullets that were extracted from Richard Griffin's body. Okay. The murder weapon was a thirty-two caliber automatic pistol. It was determined to be a Colt or a similar foreign make. The bullets that killed Polly Ann Moore had not been removed and had been buried with her body. It was assumed that the same weapon killed her that had killed Richard, so they didn't bother to take them out.
1: Not necessarily. Exactly.
2: If they should have taken them out and examined them, because if they weren't the same caliber, then you know you've got more than one killer. And not only
1: that, if you don't have the evidence of the bullets, you can't say that he killed her just because he killed that other guy. So you can't
2: charge him for two murders. You can only charge him for one. Now, police were not sure what the motive was. Richard's pockets likely had contained, you know, just coins or small bills. You know, what He wanted a cup of coffee enough have to have a time, okay. <laughs> wasn't hardly that much to probably kill somebody for. So this may be suggested that the robbery had been secondary, like as a, just an afterthought, or that it had been done to throw lawmen off. Well like the real That was not that hard with these lawmen. <laughs> Here we go. And some suspected sex may be the motive and that the assailant had raped or had intended to rape Polly anymore, or maybe he hadn't and intended I, to rape her, but had intended to rape. Well, I think they? that they—I think that he had probably intended to rape Polly, and that's because she was on a blanket outside of the car. Well, then why when, put her on? A, well, at least he was nice enough to put her when, on a blanket. <laughs> my guess is that they had put that blanket on the ground and were laying on it, okay, or sitting on it when he came up. I don't think that he would have been such a gentleman as to get a blanket out of the car when he's gonna lay her down. Yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking. So
2: I think that if he didn't and that we're still not one hundred percent sure that she was not, but to this day. But I will say that I do think that because she was laid out on the ground and shot outside the car that more than likely he did intend to and maybe he didn't because he did see the sanitary pad or she told him you know it was the, it was that time of the month or something along those lines now no evidence substantiated that she was raped she was fully clothed and a physician had confirmed that she had not been quote criminally assaulted which is what they called rape back then yes now I will say here that the bodies were not examined by a pathologist <laughs> and that most reports in later sources say that she had been raped. So I'm going to say that it could go there, was, th- there was no evidence from the examination of the body that suggests she was raped because the physician that examined her said that she wasn't. Now, I don't know how closely he examined her. I don't know if he was trying to you know not put out there that she was raped just to save embarrassment for her and her family I don't know but
1: I wouldn't think that he would tell the police that she wasn't though yeah i mean you know even if he didn't want to say it to the press yeah,
2: i just don't I, I mean i know he's a physician i'm just saying he wasn't a pathologist but you know, i mean but maybe most maybe the, the reason he didn't think i'm thinking and my big assumption here is that he said she wasn't raped because there was semen.
1: Well no because you could if a woman I mean I'm um, that's my There thought. are injuries that even a regular well, doctor can spot. I know that. Spot, I know that,
2: but I'm just saying even with a condom or even anything. if she was not raped, I'm 100% convinced that he intended to. Oh no,
1: I'm not saying he didn't intend to.
2: Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that sex was the motive here. And that he either got distracted by something. Or somebody could have driven by that we don't know right, about. Or changed his mind for some reason, hence her having on the sanitary bed. <clears throat> now, when Mary Jean Larry heard of these murders, she drove straight to Texarkana from Oklahoma where oh, she had moved. Oh, hell no. If to he sp- don't <laughs> went after this man the first time, these two would be alive. Yeah, so she goes to speak with police and tried to uh, to convince them that this was the same man that had attacked her and Jimmy. But, again, the police did not think that it was. Because they're stupid.
1: I can tell you right now it's the same man. Well, I don't know for sure. Pretty much everything is
2: the same. (laughs) How can you not be sure? Within, I'm not saying that I'm not... Anyway. Within four days following discovery of the bodies, officers had questioned more than 50 people while chasing down more than 100 false leads. Three suspects were actually arrested and questioned because of bloody clothing that they had been seen in. But they were able to explain the blood on the clothing.
1: If they would listen to this first girl, this Larry girl,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: those are the only two witnesses that they have for these crimes. Mm -hmm. So far. And you can't really trust Jimmy's, not because he's dumb and... because, I mean, he did have a very traumatic head injury. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you can't really trust his statement. So really, this girl is the only one that saw everything yes. that and first night. Yes, and she's very adamant
2: about what she saw. Well, I mean, And, I mean, I think that she believes that's what she saw. Well, I think... It's just nobody else believes that's what she saw. So, I don't know. I believe that that's what she... That she saw
1: what she says she saw yeah i mean i'm sorry she's the only one that's really saw everything and was didn't get knocked out didn't get her skull cracked Mm yeah it was slit open and had a cut on it right but she didn't lose consciousness she was awake the whole time right she stood there and told this guy looked him straight in the face and said just kill me right so you can't tell me she did not see what she says she saw yeah
2: Now, Sheriff Presley and Chief Runnels together, they posted a $500 reward leading for information that led to an arrest and conviction. And that would actually be be more than $6,000 in today's money.
1: Mary Larry should go up there and say, I need my reward.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But the case remained unsolved into April. Now, after school on Friday, April the 12th, Paul James Martin, a 16-year-old junior at Kilgore, Texas High School, borrowed his brother's shiny Ford coupe and drove more than a 100 miles to Texarkana. Stay out of Texarkana, dude. <laughs> Paul Martin was born May 8th, 1929 in Smackover, Arkansas. Smackover. My favorite city I can, city only, name I can ever. only
1: imagine how that got that <laughs> name.
2: This is where his father operated an ice business. In the early 1930s, Martin Sr. moved his business to Kilgore. Kilgore. And his wife, who didn't want to live in another oil boom town, she chose Texarkana, Arkansas as the family's new home. So she said that her and the kids were going to live in Texarkana, and you're going to go to Kilgore and run this business. Now, her husband would periodically return to Texarkana, to visit the family.
1: It was nice of you to join us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Paul and his three older brothers attended school in Texarkana. In the late 1940s, when Paul was 11, his father died unexpectedly.
0: Inez Martin. Did he
2: freeze to death. I don't know. It now? was just unexpectedly. I don't know why. Now, Inez Martin and her sons moved to Kilgore to, of course, run the business. <clears throat> But Paul still had many friends left in Texarkana, and it was this reason that he was heading there for the weekend. When he arrived in Texarkana that Friday, Paul headed to his close friend's house on the same block where he once had lived, and this friend's name was Tom Albrighton, and this is who Paul had planned to stay with for the weekend. Paul had plans for the next night to see his friend Betty Jo Booker. Betty Jo. Mm-hmm. Okay. They'd known each other for 10 years, and they had met when both were in elementary school on Arkansas Arkansas side together. (laughs) Now, Betty Jo Booker was born June fifth, 1930, in Texarkana, Arkansas, and in 1946 was a 15-year-old junior at Texas High. She was a popular girl and a very serious student. She also held a part-time job and played saxophone in a local orchestra.
1: Kids, I want you to pay attention to that.
2: <laughs> she worked,
1: yes. worked on her studies, yes. still had fun, yes. and done extracurricular activities. Yes. So, what's the problem? It can be done, people. It
0: can. On, it can be done.
2: <laughs> Jerry Atkins and his rhythm ne- rhythm airs performed at the VFW club for dances and things. <clears throat> Band director Atkins, he was only 16 himself, but he had inherited the band when older members of the band had gone off to war. Okay. Now, Betty Joe's father, William Blanton Boogie Booker. Oh, wow. He was the tax assessor for Miller County, Arkansas.
1: He had. Died. How would you like your tax assessor to be named Boogie, <laughs>
2: Boogie Booker? <laughs> Boogie Booker. He's going to come collect my taxes. Hey, Boogie. You need some money? <laughs> now, he had tragically died in a traffic accident near Shreveport in 1932 Aww. when Betty Joe was only three years old. No. Now, following Booker's death, the governor of Arkansas appointed his wife, Betty Joe's mom, Bessie, to serve the rest of his term. Now, Bessie. Bessie and Booger. Be- Bo- boogie. <laughs> boogie. <laughs> <Not> Booger. <laughs> Sorry. It's Boogie Booker. Betsy and Boogie. Bessie. Bessie and Boogie. Now, Bessie Booker was subsequently... (laughs) 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 Bessie Booker was subsequently elected to several terms as tax collector. Okay. When Betty Jo was seven, her mother Bessie married a man named Clark Brown, and he was a salesman for a local sand and gravel firm. Was he Superman. No, okay. He was not Clark Kent. This was Clark Brown. Well, it doesn't matter. Maybe that was Clark Kent's identity before. That's what I was saying. Oh, okay. I can hear you. The family moved to the Texas side of town, settling in a pleasant middle-class neighborhood called Sussex Downs. Sussex Downs.
1: Now we're in England.
2: Yes. Sussex. We.
1: Uh, yeah. I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Where I'm, are we? Are we still <laughs> in the United States? <laughs>
2: We're still in Arcana. <laughs> so we're still... We're, then, on, yeah, we're, we're, just, we're on the Texas side We're in right like now. the
1: northeastern corner of Texas. Yes, still. everything okay. that has
2: happened so far has been on the Texas side. Now, Betty Jo had a brother who was four years older than her, and, and the family had called him Billy Boy. <laughs> he was born with brain damage and had oh. never developed mentally past childhood. No. He died in a Little Rock institution when he was 16. Now, Betty Jo did date from time to time, but she really didn't have what you would call a steady boyfriend. She occasionally dated Sonny Ashley, who was the drummer for the dance band. And more often, she would see Jimmy Morris, another Texas high student. And the night of Saturday, April the 13th, 1946, Betty Jo's band had a gig to play a dance at the VFW that night. After the dance, she had made plans to meet up with Jimmy because he usually worked late at a department store on Saturday nights. However, when Paul Martin called saying he was coming in town and, and wanted to see her, she asked Jimmy if he would mind if she saw Paul that night as he was an old family friend and was in from out of town.
0: So Jimmy told her, you know, that he didn't mind,
2: that it was fine. Now, Paul had plans to take Betty Jo to the Midnight Movie after the dance at the VFW. However, it's believed that he didn't tell Betty Jo this because she never mentioned it to anyone about going to the movies, and she would have told him that she would not be done in time to go to the Midnight Movie. Okay. Now, there was also a slumber party going on that night at one of Betty Jo's friends, and they had, And Betty Jo had told her that they may stop by after the dance. Now, while Betty Jo was performing at, in Atkins Fan, Paul Martin and Tom Albrighton, they spent the evening with friends just hanging around town. Tom had a date with a lady, a girl named Ramona Putman. And they went to a movie, then ate a snack at a cafe. Uh-huh. Which that seems to be the thing to do in Texarkana, go well, to the cafe. Was, <laughs> uh, it,
1: it was the nineteen forties. Yeah.
2: So Paul wanted to go to the midnight movie after meeting Betty Joe. And the plan was that Paul would go pick up Tom would pick up Tom and Ramona as soon as he had picked up Betty Joe. So while so Tom and Ramona were supposed to wait, to wait at um, Tom's house for paul and betty joe to get even even you're getting confused (laughs) so paul and betty paul was going to go pick up betty joe this was paul's plan go pick up betty joe from the BFW. okay tom and his date ramona were going to wait at tom's house then paul and betty joe were going to go by pick up tom and ramona and then they were all four going to go to the movie okay got it i think okay now betty joe was one of four girls in the band how and big
1: was this band? It was like
2: a big full orchestra like oh, that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't a band, it was an orchestra. Well, I said orchestra, but I'm just saying band now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so one of the girl, one of the mothers um, of, the, of one of the girls took the girl members of the orchestra to the VFW club that night. And that night, the duty of taking the girls home fell to Ernest Holcomb, who played, also played saxophone in the band. Or orchestra,
1: excuse me. Well, I'm saying because there is a difference in an orchestra and a band. And this was the time of the big band music. Well, it was a big
2: band music thing. So, a big crowd was expected that night at the VFW. Manager Lacey Lawrence had promoted the event by promising to give away eight pairs of nylon hose. Oh,
1: my God. That was, you know what, I Mm -hmm. bet all them girls went nuts over that.
2: They had, the following ad was placed Who will the eight lucky, oh wait, I'm sorry. Who will be the eight lucky women? Attend this dance and find out. So it was a big deal, is what I'm saying.
1: Hey, not, hey, (laughs)
2: look. A girl could
1: never have enough pair of nylon hoses. Hose. (laughs) How is that, how how do you say
2: that? (laughs) Pairs of hose. Okay. I guess.
1: Kind of like deer. You don't say deers. Deers. (laughs)
2: Now, the band started playing at around 9 p.m. They played for four hours with a few breaks, and nothing much of consequence happened. It was well after 1 o'clock in the morning when the band wound up its gig. Now, Paul Martin, not knowing that Betty Jo would not be able to leave the dance in time to attend the midnight movie, had waited in his car. He was standing outside when she finally walked out of the building. And one of Betty Joe's bandmates, Betty and Roberts, walked over to Paul's car with Betty Joe and saw Paul take her saxophone case and set it on the back floorboard of the coupe. So Paul and Betty Joe said that they may stop by the slumber party that was in progress at Betty Joe's friend's house and then perhaps would have a snack at one of the all-night restaurants. Because that's what you do in Texarkana.
1: Maybe he should go by and tell that other couple <laughs> that they're not coming.
2: I think they finally gave up on him. <laughs> but first, Betty Jo had to drop her saxophone at home. Because whatever else she did after any performance, she would always take her expensive saxophone well, home those first. are not cheap. Right. On the way to her house, however, Paul must have suggested that they drive to Spring Lake Park that was only a few minutes away from Anthony Drive and then take the saxophone home. Now Spring Lake Park was north of the city limits. There were it was like just a regular park. There were picnic areas, recreation for softball and other sports. It had a dance pavilion. And it was a popular spot for local kids to go and catch up. Okay. <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. All right. So they
1: were going to play bat and ball. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, they had the
2: sports complex there. There so. you go. So he drove the coupe north past the city limits to Spring Lake Park, crossed the, the Kansas City Southern Railroad tracks leading north from the city, And entered the park area.
1: Okay. You don't ever park by the railroad tracks. No. You have to go over the
2: railroad tracks just to get to the park. Everything bad
1: happens close to the railroad tracks.
2: Now, for most teenagers, this was familiar ground. And, you know, Paul parked. We don't know what happened after that. Well... They talked and caught up, <laughs> played <bat> and ball. <laughs> now, later that morning around 5 a.m., Tom Moores, who was a prominent farmer who lived on Moores Lane in the Pleasant Grove community north of town, he was getting up to get ready to go check on his farm. Now, while he was brushing his hair at around 5.30, he heard an unusual sound for that time of morning. It was a gunshot. Nobody should be shooting anybody at 5 o'clock in the morning. Oh, right, especially on a Sunday morning. So all crime stopped
1: on Sunday well, morning. Well,
2: I mean, it's just unusual to hear a gunshot out in the middle of nowhere at 5 a.m. on Sunday. I would Sunday think that morning. would be
1: where you would hear them at. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Maybe he list- I'm wrong.
2: He listened carefully but didn't hear anything else and he wondered why anyone would be firing a gun for any purpose at that time of day on a because Sunday morning. he's
1: killing somebody.
2: <laughs> well, he's like, that's not, like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, no, you shouldn't. He didn't think any more about it, though, and he left to go check on at the farm. Now, also around this time, Clark and Bessie Brown had become worried because they had realized that Betty Joe had not come home. So they placed a call to Jananne Gleason, and that was the girl who was holding the slumber party. And they thought, well, maybe Betty Jo had decided to stay and just had forgotten to call and tell them. So she called, but they're like, no, we haven't seen her. So Bessie called Betty Ann Roberts to ask if she knew where Betty Jo had gone after the dance. She said that she had seen Betty Jo put her saxophone in Paul Martin's car and saw them leave together, and that was the last she'd seen or heard from them, and that she didn't know what they'd had intended to do next. Now, shortly before 6 o'clock, Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their young son left their home on Summer Hill Road, north of town, on their way to Prescott, Arkansas, because they were going to visit relatives for the day. Okay. Now, as they cut through along North Park Road, they saw a form lying at the edge of the unpaved road, and it looked like a human body. So we well, were kind of walks kinda, like a duck
1: and quacks like a duck.
2: Yeah, so we were kind of inches closer, you know, trying know. to we figure out what it was, and realized it was the body of a boy lying on his left side. His head and the trunk of his body were on the leaves and grass, and his feet and legs were laying in the road. Okay. He was wearing a light-colored long-sleeved shirt with his arms and hands in front of him. Now, Weaver didn't get out of the car to investigate. He just, he drove about 200 yards to the nearest home and told them what he'd found and asked them to call the sheriff's office.
1: One smart person <laughs> in all of Texarkana, Texas. Two, because of
2: that, that... Uh the, the tow truck road road driver's, driver's wife. wife. <laughs> yeah. Two. Now, Sheriff Presley and Texas side chief of police, Jack Runnels, they were old friends, and they had actually met that morning for breakfast, so they were together when the call oh, came damn, in. Oh, my God. God, just sat down to eat. <laughs> so they sped out together in Presley's car. Can't headed not you just the scene. that? Yeah. <laughs> in those 40s cars. <laughs> <laughs> They were the first lawmen to arrive on the scene, and carefully they checked the boy's body, this time protecting the tracks and other possible clues at the scene. Oh well maybe we've learned
1: something yeah, from the first two. Learn, or maybe that police chief there like don't don't mess with those tracks, man. Maybe he's <laughs> the smart one. maybe he hasn't been there for the other two. Yes he was.
2: Oh uh, he was? And he didn't get there first at the other one. Well
1: but he was there. He was there but didn't get there to secure right. the crime he scene. He wasn't
2: the first one there. So this could, time
1: See, he wasn't the first one there, he couldn't
2: secure the crime right. scene. This time he's the first one there. They immediately verified that the boy was dead. They found his wallet and were able to identify him as Paul Martin. He had been shot four times. One bullet had entered the back of the neck and emerged through the front of the skull. Another had entered through the left shoulder from the back, with the third bullet going into his right hand. The fourth bullet went into his face. Ugh. Now, blood was seen on the other side of the road by a fence indicating that he might have been shot on the other side of the road and crawled across the road i don't know because there was no mention of blood on the road so i don't know soon other officers from the city and county arrived and called the area for clues martin's car was located abandoned alongside the road parallel to the Kansas city southern train track i told you dude (laughs) the keys were in the ignition and it was about a mile from where the body had been found presley who was careful to avoid any of the tracks he studied bushes and brush around the park and at one point he scrutinized a spot in the parking area that was flanked by bushes and he was trying to he was looking for anything out of the ordinary He saw a small black object in the ground around the bushes. So he, you know, carefully steps over and picks it up, and it was a date book. He examined it and discovered that it belonged to Paul Martin. Now, he didn't say anything about finding this date book to anybody. He just slipped it into his suit coat, his coat pocket, and decided to just keep this to himself for now. He also found a used condom not far away, but he didn't bother to retrieve it. I don't much blame him. <laughs> now, at the time, there was no way to determine who had used it or when it had been used yeah. or with whom because they didn't have DNA. So, And it wasn't uncommon to find condoms in Lover's Lane. So, I mean, if it was today, yeah, you would have gathered that. But Just at to the time, just to make sure. The DNA, but
1: at this time... But you would have had better ways of gathering no. it than what they would have
2: had <laughs> just go pick it up oh. now <laughs> at this time none of the officers and few others in town even knew that betty joe booker had been with paul that night her status would not be raised until news of martin's murder had spread over town and reached the small group of friends that had known that she would left with him where's betty joe yeah Now, as the news of the murder moved by radio and word of mouth, Lawmen started streaming towards Spring Lake Park. And officers soon learned that a girl named Betty Jo Booker had been with Paul Martin and that she was missing. Oh, shit. (laughs) Now, those not searching for clues to Paul's murder were seeking any sign of Betty Jo. They were trying to find where she may be. They found two sets of tracks near the car. One larger, which was probably a man's footprint, and the other set smaller, which of course probably belonged to a woman. One of the men said, they got out here and they went over there and pointed toward the side of the road where the bushes were. But the tracks appeared to leave from the road over dirt and leaves toward the brush, no more than 30 feet from the road. But they they didn't find any tracks going back to the road or the car and it was as if at one point they, they they went to a point in the brush beside the road and then just disappeared they weren't <sighs> able to see any more tracks coming going further or coming back well if it was in a whole bunch of brush you might not have seen it anyway yeah. though so the police are wondering you know what's up with this <laughs>
1: <And> Well, my <laughs>
2: guess would be what's up with these footprints and why did they only go in one direction and not back to the road
1: Well, is she back at the car? No. So that would be why they didn't go back. to.
2: (laughs) Well, they didn't know. So they're just wondering if the tracks had anything to do with the case even, or if they had just, there were somebody else's tracks, or if somebody had gotten out of the, if the two people that those tracks belonged to had gotten out of one car, walked to another car, and then left. You think? Could be. It could be. They were um, ghost prints. I don't know. Now, the search for it's Betty. It's the buffalo. <laughs>
1: it's
2: not even buffalo intake. <laughs> the search for Betty Joe widened beyond the immediate area where they'd found Martin's body and where they had found his car. And so, two brothers named James and George Boyd, along with Jane's two sons, Jim Jr. and Jack, and a friend of the boys named Ted. I'm going to get this name wrong. Schwoppy. Schwappy, Schwappy is S-C-H-O-E-P-P-E-Y. Schwappy, 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 Schwoppy. Schwappy. Anyway, they all piled in a car and went to join the search party. And the older boys decided that they would search the Pleasant Grove community area because that's where they'd grown up. They had played in those woods and hunted in those woods, so they knew that area very well. So they drove the car off Somerville Road onto a dirt road and they unloaded and fanned out. Now George Boyd was the first to see a body behind the trees in rough terrain in a wooded stretch a few yards off the road. Oh. George starts yelling that he found her and of course everybody, the, the other people he were with come running. Now, when they found Betty Joe, she was fully clothed with her full-length coat buttoned around her. She was lying on her back with her right hand in the pocket of her coat. She was wearing what was called a midi blouse. Yeah. I think it was one of those short blouses.
1: Yeah, like the, the, yeah.
2: And a plaid skirt with patent leather shoes. So, Ted... Schwoppy. Schwoppy. <laughs> Schwoppy and George Boyd, they stood guard by the body while the others went to tell police officers what they'd found. So, Sheriff Presley, he was soon there, and he set about protecting the crime scene. Now, the body was approximately a mile from where Martin's body was found and approximately two miles from where the car was found. Okay. So, it was the car, Martin, then So, that would explain why the footprints didn't go back to the car. Yes, I'm thinking that the... They got in another, the killer's car. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, Betty Jo had been shot twice, once in the heart and once in the head. The one in the head entered the left cheek near the nose. The angle of the bullets suggested the gunman had been right-handed and had faced her as he killed her. The sheriff believed that Martin had been killed first though he did acknowledge that it was really impossible at that point to tell the exact time of the shootings. From the first discovery of the bodies, the sheriff cited the similarities to the Griffin Moore case.
1: Oh, wow.
2: He emphasized that the bodies had not been abused, and by abused he means sexually, he means sexually, Okay. beyond the bullet wounds. That was pretty much the only thing that had happened they that had, was the only thing that right.
1: penetrated them
2: right <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> you're welcome now unlike the Griffin Moore case however no attempt seemed to have been made to conceal the bodies of paul and betty joe well he All, didn't co- try mm-hmm. to conceal any of them well he tried to conceal i think that he was trying to conceal the bodies in the second in the first murder because he had put um, he
1: put her back in the car, but I mean, he left them sitting there in the car on the side of the road that he pretty much knew somebody was going to come down at some point.
2: Right, but in the but day, his body like Paul, but Paul Martin's body was just left laid out on a road where I mean, anybody. Well, maybe who came up on maybe it would he just like, didn't
1: have time.
2: Oh my gosh, there's a dead body in the road. Now another young couple had been slain in a lovers' lane. Then this seemed to form a pattern in people's minds that had not existed before. And even though at this time the Hollis-Larry beatings still had not been connected to this pattern, How? nobody is thinking that those had anything because to do with it. Because if that car
1: hadn't come along, he would have
2: killed that's what them. I, that's what I think too, yes. Yes, the only reason that they were alive was because that, that car happened along
1: right. when he thought he was and out he there. And he wasn't where...
2: far enough off the road. right. Now, they had four deaths in three weeks, exactly three weeks apart, and on late Saturday nights. There was no way that anybody would be able to conclude that these weren't connected. Well, all three of them are connected. Yeah. There's too many similarities. Yeah. Now, Jimmy Morris, who you remember Jimmy Morris, he was the uh-huh. one that Betty Jo was supposed to go on the date with, but she canceled to go with Paul Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I think it's an interesting story the way Jimmy found out about the deaths. That Sunday morning, he arrived at First Methodist Church for services. Okay. A fellow Texas teenager named Ross Perot oh, was Lord. the one that told him there had oh, been a God, murder really? of a boy at Spring Lake Park and that Betty Jo Booker may also have been a victim. So he found out from Ross Perot. That's just like <laughs>
1: Ross Perot <to> open his <laughs> mouth when it doesn't need to be opened. <laughs> can't you just ma- I, heard hey, I, heard I heard there was a murder I heard there was a murder at this point on Spring Lake Drive and uh
2: <laughs> that, you know that's my Ross Perot impression
1: <laughs> nailed, well, it. nailed it Joe, <laughs> Ben Betty Joe I, 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 they can't
2: find her so there's, uh, she may have been a victim too Ross Right? Ross Perot came up and told him was Ross, Ross, Ross P. Right. P. I always thought it was Ross Perot Ross Right. <laughs> not Right. stop misinforming our listeners <laughs> That aren't old enough to even know. So I bet some of them don't even know who Ross Perot was. That's the
1: sad thing. <laughs> Guys, go online and look up Ross Perot. Yeah, he ran for president
2: and I he think, like this. And he talked like this. He was from Texas. And he was from Texas. He and was all, a short little guy with big ears. He, he was
1: short with big ears and real, 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 really short hair. And, yeah.
2: <laughs> and he said the craziest shit you have ever Yeah, heard y'all just think
1: life. that Bob Dole said some crazy stuff and some other people said some oh no go look up ross perot go on youtube and look up ross perot because i'm guarantee you there's a
2: video <laughs> somewhere up dana carvey doing ross Perot. oh my god Saturday that my is life. so funny <laughs> so anyway i just thought we'd have a little ross perot break there <laughs> <laughs> so about nine o'clock sunday night betty joe's bandmates went to the sheriff's office to, and talked to captain mt <laughs> Captain M.T. Lone Wolf Gonzalez He had just arrived that afternoon from Dallas To lead the Texas Rangers investigation Well, now we have the Texas Rangers
1: But mm-hmm. I'm still not convinced anything's going to get done
2: <laughs> Now the four musicians spent considerable time Talking to and answering questions From both Captain Gonzalez and Sheriff Presley And right off they mentioned Betty Joe's saxophone and it hadn't been found in Paul Martin's car or in the area where around the bodies or the car. So this made the saxophone an important key to the mystery.
1: Doesn't Bill Clinton like to play the saxophone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thought it was him.
2: Yeah. It was. I thought. Is that, that all you got to ask yeah. about that? Okay. I couldn't I knew there was one that liked <laughs> and I thought it was Who him. happened to run against Ross Perot. Ross
1: Perot. And he beat him because it was Ross Perot. <laughs>
2: Okay, I'm done now. All right. So, Jerry Atkins, who was not a police officer, mind you, he was one of the teens in the band with Betty Jo. The next day, he went, which was that Monday, he went to Beasley's music store where Betty Jo had bought the instrument and acquired the make and serial number of the saxophone, which was then circulated to music stores and pawn shops over several states. You want to know what is so sad about this? I find that so
1: weird. Why is that weird? Because the the police didn't do that. Exactly.
2: And
0: you've
1: got got a tow truck driver's wife, (laughs) some man just, I can't even remember who it was now, and a teenager that's smarter at this investigation
2: than the police are. I don't know that they asked the teenager to do that. No, I can't probably, imagine that they would. And, and I can't see why, I can't see a teenage boy just taking it upon himself either just to go get this information unless, I mean, I don't even know how that even came about. Because but he, he's
1: smart enough to say, okay, if her saxophone's gone, it's worth a lot of money. The only way they're going to be able to track if someone sells it is if they've got the serial number? Oh yeah, but I would think that that would
2: I don't I don't know how that but happened you have to also, or how that came about, but that's what happened. You
1: also have to realize that this was the forties, yeah, and teenagers were a little more mature <laughs> back then than they are now.
2: A little bit. <laughs> well,
1: I was trying to be nice.
2: They weren't mature then than we, were, than we were when we were teenagers. Exactly,
1: and that was the point. I was going back to that every like,
2: every generation loses a maturity level. They
1: lose brain cells. <laughs> I, I don't get it, and that's me included because I don't have the same brain cells as this kid. I wouldn't have done that. I, I mean, just find
2: it weird that it was him that went and did that.
1: I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have thought to have done that. I mean, I really wouldn't have. I might have thought to go to the pawn shops, but it would have never crossed my mind. Well, right. we're not going to know if we don't have the serial number and all right. this.
2: Now, even though Sheriff Presley had stated that the bodies had not been abused, one detail in the state's file at Austin, which was never made public at the time, noted that Betty Joe's vagina did display bruising. Mm. No mention was made of semen or rape. And the bruise could have just been could have been caused by a hand grip or an object such as a pistol barrel. Alice was done with Mary Jean Larry. Yeah. Oh, well. Gee, I wonder if that would connect the <laughs> then. Now, no one but the two earlier victims, however, had connected the beating incident to the murders at the time. There was another note in the same file, however, that indicated that she had had her coat off outside of the car at some point. This was because they had found a leaf between her coat and her blouse. So, since she was found with her coat buttoned... Maybe that's just
1: a talented tree.
2: <laughs> so, since she had been found with her coat buttoned, you know, they're, they're saying that the coat had to be off at that, some point. at some point for that leaf to get there. So, was... Could she have been forced to get t- to redress after the rape, or could the killer have dressed her after he shot her? You know, I don't know. I think that it would probably be more likely that he would have forced her to get dressed, yeah because I think it would have taken way more time
1: for him for to him, him to dress her
2: time that he didn't have because he didn't know who was who was coming. coming. Now, FBI lab results a week later on April the 20th revealed that a swab test of Betty Jo's vaginal passage was positive for male seminal secretion. But they can't prove whose it was. Right. Now, no foreign hairs were present among her pubic hairs, though they did contain semen. A saline solution wash of Paul Martin's penis ruled out the possibility of intercourse between the young couple thus leading to the conclusion that her killer had raped her okay now i don't know how um what's the word i'm looking for accurate that test was where they washed his penis and didn't find semen in the wash i don't know it it can be I've it never, can be fairly accurate because i've don't think I've ever heard of that before. I've heard of it. Now, the evidence was as precise as the science at the time could make it, of course. Right. (laughs) And it was definite enough to assign blame to an unknown man. So, that report stated that it was an unknown individual that had had intercourse with Betty Jo. Now, whether it was consensual or not, I don't know. Now, my thing is... She would not have had to have either been Paul Martin or the rapist because she was at that dance the rest right, of all right. night, so it's not like she had sex during that time. And in the absence of today's DNA studies, results were unable to tie the event to a specific man, like I just said. Now, one phrase in this report alluded to the previous double murders. It stated, not definitely known if Victor Moore had been raped. And, of course, they're talking about Pollyanne Moore. Right. No data had been presented that she had been raped, which meshed with the evidence cited earlier that she had not been, as the physician that examined her had said. And, of course, that... The, also the fact that she was wearing the sanitary pad which may have saved her from that crime if the killer had planned to rape her which i honestly I honestly, honestly think, think it he did and something stopped him whether it was the sanitary or pad somebody or somebody pull it right. coming up the road or something now in the same April 20th dispatch the FBI confirmed that the same firearm a 32 caliber automatic had killed all four victims
1: now how can they how can they say that when they did not pull the Bullets out of more. Because
2: they just are assuming that the same bullets that were in.
1: Okay, so we know for sure that it killed three people. Right,
2: and they're assuming the fourth victim, even though they didn't bother to take the There are no assumptions in the investigation. Right, right. But that's what they're saying. But also, three latent fingerprints could not be explained. Oh, well. One found on the steering wheel, while not necessarily that of the killer was not the owner's print or that of either victim. So it didn't belong to Paul Martin's brother, who owned the car, and it didn't belong to Paul Martin, and it didn't belong to Betty Jo. Okay. And that doesn't mean that it belonged to the killer.
1: Well, no, because it couldn't belong to anybody, but chances
2: are... It was somebody, I mean, it was somebody that touched the steering wheel, obviously. So, you know, I don't know. Now, despite the lab evidence... I think that the argument can be made that the killer was, first of all, not a conventional rapist. No. Most rapists would more likely have sought out a vulnerable female who was not, by herself. Yeah, by herself and taken her. Now, I will say he had, however, eliminated the male victim in all in both cases first. Well, this is true. So he did. That would have oh, well, that actually left the female all three, actually yeah, in, in all three cases. Yes. Now... That did leave the female alone and vulnerable, right?
1: Maybe he thought raping them was easier because he was looking for couples that were out on lover lane, lovers lane, because they'd be out in the middle of nowhere, right. and he would take the male out and then rape the female. Right, it and would kill be easier her. than just
2: grabbing somebody off the street. Right, yeah. Now, Betty Jo Booker's killer also had taken care that her body was normally clothed and left in a condition, unlike that of many rape murder victims you know most of the time the body's you know it wasn't the body wasn't hidden it wasn't desecrated or mutilated and it wasn't right. left there naked or i mean it was you know the body so had he has clothed. compassion but, he's just crazy and kills people i mean i don't know that could be some i don't know what the motive for that is though he could just and i, I also know. think that there's a good chance that the that he was impotent which is why he raped Mary. Mary Jean with the pistol and didn't even try to rape her with the bat ball. Ba- with the bat ball. <laughs> You're so stupid. So I think that that's a good possibility, too. I'm trying to too. keep it PG. Yeah. So, I mean, and also unlike the first double murder, the killer had faced Betty Jo Booker when he shot her rather than shooting her in the back of the head. hmm Now, although the results were the same in all four deaths, the Spring Lake Park killer had modified his tactics in these small ways. Why? I mean, I don't know. Could it just be he was learning? Could be. Um, You know, like our last series that we did on the Colonial Parkway murder, where the murders, the situations were the same, but the actual murders were not the same. Right. Could it be... You know the same killer, but he's modifying his the way he's killing based on his learning experiences. Or he
1: could be modifying it based on where they're located. True. Because now. there's too many. You know, all three of them are connected. Because I honestly believe that those first two, if the car had not come by at the time it did, he would have killed. Oh, both
2: absolutely. Of them. I I mean, I do think that that. Um. Yeah, absolutely. I think that. I they mean, there's dead. no doubt about
1: it. I mean.
2: And I think that his intention on the second one was to rape Pollyanne Moore. Now, what, if he did, again, it's possible he did. And then there and again, if he didn't, I think there's a reason he didn't. There's, but I think that that was his intention. Oh, yeah. Now... Tom Moores, who was the farmer that was living where Betty Joe's body was found, remember, uh-huh. he's the one that heard the gunshot. He said the sound seemed to come from the direction of Moores Lane, and that would tend to tie with Betty Joe's death to that time, because he would have been able to hear that shot. Right. So they're thinking that that must have been the shot he heard, must have been one that killed Betty Joe. But there and again, she was shot twice, but he only heard one gunshot. So, I don't know. That's not mentioned in this report. So, I don't know. <laughs> there's nothing mentioned about the discrepancy there. However, Mrs. L. L. Swint, who lived only about 200 yards from where the body was found, said she had not heard anything.
1: Some people, sometimes the way sound travels, like if there's a wind or something, yeah. it can carry the sound away more than people realize mm-hmm. it. So it could have been that he heard the one gunshot, then there was another one, and mm-hmm. it just didn't reach that far.
2: Right. And I, that is true, and I will give a perfect mm. example of that. In the Manson murders, um, the Cielo Drive murders of mm-hmm. Sharon Tate, that, if you know anything about that, it was up on a mountain mm-hmm. uh, with a big canyon below. Right, There were people down below on the street, on street level, that heard the screams coming from that house, but nobody in the neighborhood heard those screams. Right. So, it's just... It's just the way sound can
1: travel from different atmospheric conditions.
2: So, that's just an example. Now, she, this Mrs. Swint, she said that she didn't even know anything had happened until the hearse passed by her house, and she slight wiser, or her passing by the house. And then she... Well, I'd assume somebody's dead. Yeah, so then she went to find out what happened. Months later, in November, a former resident who'd moved to Broken Bow, Oklahoma, he, is named, he was 45-year-old Ernest Browning, he came forward and said he saw an old model automobile coming out of the lane around 6 in the morning. He'd lived at the intersection of a side road and Summer Hill Road. He'd heard shots followed by a car starting. Then he saw the old model car drive to Somerville Road for about 100 yards, then turn south toward Newtown. And it was not quite light enough for him to make out a license plate number. He wasn't sure that he would be able to identify the driver if he saw him again because he said that he only saw the car's driver momentarily early that morning as the man drove out of the lane and past his house. Now, my question is, why did this man wait six months to come forward with this information? And why people, in the hell did he move to Oklahoma? Well, a lot
1: of people will do that. <laughs> they they don't want to. A lot of people, their why? thought is,
2: I don't want to get
1: involved. But then they start thinking about it and start thinking about it. And then they come forward. People, your best bet, just go ahead and tell them what you know. I mean, I
2: just find that. Because I mean,
1: the longer you wait, the less they're going to believe you. Right. Because it's been so long since it happened. Yeah.
2: And, I mean, really, that description he gave, there's, I mean, there's nothing there. The, you know, he just a really guy in an old model
1: car. Well, everybody had an old model car. And that's true. But maybe he, I mean, it, like he and, said, it wasn't quite light. So he may not have, re- I yeah. mean, he just saw a car driving by. Right. So maybe at first he thought there wasn't anything to do with the murders. And then he said, well, I'll tell them just in case. Right.
2: Now, editor, 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 editor. editor J.Q. McHaffey and his staff at the Gazette were looking for a short term for which to de- refer to this case because they didn't want to describe it as the Texarkana murders. The Lovers Lane murders. Because that would not really distinguish it from numerous other cases. Now, City Editor Calvin Sutton, he had a solution to this. His solution oh, was to give the killer a name instead of a name for the series of murders. So they settled on the Phantom because the killer appeared seemingly out of nowhere, left only death, and faded into the darkness like wow. an apparition. Maybe it's the Grim Reaper. Yeah. Maybe that's what y'all should have called it. <laughs> so the legend of the Phantom killer, the killer was born. They, that's Creepy. That's creepy, isn't it? And that's where we're going to leave off this week. Guys. Oh, <laughs> we send our con- hate mail. <laughs> we will continue next week and with the Phantom the Killer. The rest of the story. <laughs> All right. So I need to um I need to mention the sword, the sources for this um story. Um, it's, there's a book The Phantom Killer by James Presley, who is actually the nephew of Sheriff Presley. Who were these cases. Um, there's a series of videos. Your uncle
1: redeemed himself,
2: <laughs> There's a series of presentations at the Texarkana Museum System that were given by Jeremy Kennington and John Tennyson that I got some information from. An article by Prudence McIntosh at texasmonthly.com. An article by Christy Stockton at thoughtcatalog.com. And an article by Field Walsh at txktoday.com so we you know, will continue next week with right. the rest of the story but right now it's time for christina's favorite you know what i, you know what I also have what
1: i have a subscription to newspapers.com i could go in and look up original articles yeah i did that there's just not, not a whole story. lot
2: of information in those because those articles were written before the fbi released all the um reports i know and stuff but it pretty case. cool yeah i, I mean, mean it was cool to look at but I like Just doing saying that. that was before all the police reports. And I'm stuff boring. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I mean, it is interesting to look at, but right now it's time. Wait, we're, since we're not doing Mondays anymore, we had to do away with Monday Moron. Uh-huh. So I've renamed this segment to Our Crafty Criminal of the Week. It's the crafty criminal. It's the crafty criminal, and please know that there is nothing about these people that are crafty, and they can barely be called criminals. <laughs> Okay, but, they, um, but that's the name we're going with. Maybe we should just use John Boy and Billy's dumb crook Knees. I'm not a thief. I'm not stealing from other people. All right. So this story is about Mitchell Des, Deslate. I think Deslate. it's like Deslate. He walked into a Baton Rouge, Louisiana hotel. Well, sounds normal yeah, so far. It's normal so far. And he asked the clerk for a room. No, yeah, okay. You no, know, nothing. Nothing, nothing to out of the ordinary here. here. However, the clerk wasn't a clerk. Oh no! Turned out to be a state trooper. Oh, you wanna know why? That because be- the hotel was actually a state trooper station, and that's when Desilotay was arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this week's crafty criminal. Well, the good thing <laughs> is, is he got a room. <laughs> they did give him, he a, gave room. him a room. <laughs> In
1: a free meal, it came with free breakfast, 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 lunch, and dinner. <laughs> That's quite the deal. I'm, for real, <laughs> way to go, dude! And I mean, he got a chauffeur to the yep. to his
2: room. Way to be Mitchell.
1: See you. you I, I know. I think he knew what he
2: was doing. Yes. Hashtag winning. I think he didn't have any money, <laughs> and he said, "I'm just going to go in here and act like I'm drunk." You know what? Maybe he is more crafty than we realize. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys.
1: Don't, what? <laughs> I'm playing my 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 thing over here. No, please stop playing your
2: thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Don't forget, you can check out our Patreon page at Patreon.com/slash our mini episode for April is out today. So in, in that, we discuss the murder of Kevin Potts, who was murdered at a rest stop in West Virginia. So you can check that out if you are so inclined to. You can also check out our merch at T Public, uh, where at that's T Public slash One Crime Pod, and I'll put a link to those sites in the description for this episode, so you don't have to worry about writing them down. You can just Go look at the description and there'll be a I link there. I still
1: have not gotten a coffee mug.
2: <laughs> you still haven't paid me for one. <laughs> I'm not paying for a coffee mug. Remember you can also email us at one crime at a time at gmail dot com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We are at one crime pod on all of those sites. And, people, the biggest thing you can do to help us out um, is go rate us and give us a review on our podcast. So you'll have more to read once a week
1: for the next 17 years. Please.
2: We would so greatly appreciate hearing from you. So, I guess that's it. Do you have anything? I don't. Just, I'll be back one day without the sticks, I promise. Okay. Well, until we are, and we will say until next week, remember, only dive into one crime at a time. Bye. 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 Thank you.